Uh, we are about to introduce our next guest. Um, and the man who will host, uh, uh, center the hour around, it's Eric Kaufman. Eric is an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. Kaufman's scholarship focuses on cultural politics, religious and national identity, and demography. He is the author of White Shift um, in 2019, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth in 2010, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, 2004, and The Orange Order in 2007, among others. He has co-authored reports on academic freedom uh, and the political response to demographic change and edited books on demography and ethnicity. An editor of the journal Nations and Nationalism, he's written for the New York Times, Newsweek, Foreign Affairs, The New Statesman, The National Review, and Prospect. He holds a PhD from London School of Economics and a political science and lives in London. Eric Kaufman, welcome so much to the beautiful Catskill Mountains. How are you today? Good, good, Denison. Thanks for having me. And I, I was just uh, the other day saying I have been to your area, but uh, more uh, spent more time in the in the Adirondacks. But still, I love the area. Um, you you've got a book out over the last year, that year and a half now. Um, white Shift: Populism, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. What? What interested you to, to what drew you to that topic first of all? Well, uh, clearly since 2014 in Europe and and, and starting in 2015-16 in the U.S. there's been a big what we what we'd call the populist moment, um, and so that's the context in which um, you know the idea for this book arose. But of course, I've been researching on this since my PhD, you know, over 20 years ago. So I've just been very interested in these, the, the question of ethnic change uh, and national identity. Uh, and I think we're seeing the politics of that really emerging very strongly now. Absolutely. Um, you date it back to 2014 uh, and your start. I mean, I remember, I remember, I think it was around 2010, Angela Merkel, uh, David Cameron, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy, Koski. It, it seemed like um, they all declared uh, uh, that uh, multiculturalism was has utterly failed, uh, and um, I think Merkel gave that statement and was greeted with a standing ovation at, at a conservative Christian Democratic Union meeting or something. Uh, a year later, uh, Cameron defined Britain's long-standing state-sponsored policy of multiculturalism an abysmal failure, and Francis Sarkozy espoused more or less the same tone, um, that French public policies were too concentrated on the culture of those who arrived and not enough on the host culture. Uh, What are your thoughts on that, and did that help stimulate your interest in this book? Well, I think that belongs to a somewhat different time period of, of starting in the late 90s up until that 2010 statement. This was really in the context of, of Islam and, and, and there was you know Islamist terrorism and so on and, and this issue of integration versus multiculturalism. So it was much more less about the immigration issue per se and, and more perhaps about this idea that uh, you know we need to concentrate on what what holds us together and and we don't want to have groups that are completely alienated from society so that they're forming uh, sub-societies which might incubate radicalism. So that, it, it was a slightly different context, and I don't think it's the same context as the post-2014 
one with the populist uh, rise, which really has more to do with uh, immigration numbers, whereas that previous debate is much more about the integration of Muslims as, as a sort of social issue. Okay, interesting. So 2014 increase in immigration numbers now. In Europe, I'm looking straight to the Middle East as the root cause of that uh, with the wars going on there. Is that what you would identify as the beginning of it, or did European Euro policies just allow for unlimited immigration issues in general? Um, well, what happened in, is that you had an increase, yeah, partly because of what's happening in Syria and to some degree in Iraq and, and, and other parts of the Middle East. You had a rise in uh, refugee and asylum migration uh, starting around 2014. So the number of, for a long time, the number of non-EU citizens entering Europe was, the EU, was something around five or 600,000, and then it really starts to to rise in 2014, up to a peak of over 2 million in late 2015 with the migrant crisis. During that period, first in 2014, we saw uh, populist right parties score some of their best ever results in the European elections. Nearly 30% of uh, Danish, French, and British voters voted for populist right parties. Mm -hmm. And then the 2015 migrant uh, crisis then led to a sort of shot in the arm for a lot of the populist parties, the AFD in Germany, Sweden Democrats in Sweden reaching 25% in the poll. You know, it's really quite astounding uh, number. So that, and then of course, Brexit, the first UKIP under Nigel Farage, and then Brexit in 2016. So that was part of that real post-2014 populist moment. And then in the U.S., you had uh, following, well, to some degree, following from that, the Trump phenomenon. Sure. Um, so the Trump phenomenon, you see it as a populist movement then as well. Yeah, very much, and, and, and very much, I think, motivated by very, very similar, not entirely the same, but a lot of similar dynamics, um, concern over immigration, the fact mainstream parties were not addressing the issue to the satisfaction of a significant chunk of the electorate, and therefore a populist party like UKIP or a populist maverick like Trump could uh, essentially move into that market. So it's a bit like you know, nobody's supplying blue jeans and a black market pops up uh, to supply right. it because all of the mainstream outlets just want to supply one pair of pants, right? So, so it's kind of that market opportunity, and then Trump moved in in the way that, say, UKIP moved in in Britain. Um, so, yeah, I, I see a lot of dynamics as similar. Of course, there are some, some differences in the U.S. case as well. Okay. Now, you just mentioned um, the rise of populism um, despite sort of mainstream, uh, I guess, uh, mainstream thought or thinking or policies. Do you see the rise of populism as counter to the American narrative or mainstream narrative today? Um, well, I, it depends which – there are many types of populism. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got sort of your left-wing populism, Bernie Sanders, and you've got your more right-wing style populism, which is based around immigration, national identity. Uh, it draws on – it's certainly got – echoes through American history, um, so I don't think it's, it's new in that sense. Right. Um, but, you know, if, you, if by American narrative you mean sort of the nation of immigrants narrative, then yes, it is counter to that, but then that is arguably just one of the competing narratives of American society that's existed. Gotcha, gotcha. That's often cited by people uh, who are proponents of immigration today. They're saying, we're all immigrants. How can you be against what 
this nation was built on, in a sense. I don't know. Does England have that same sort of rooted philosophy of, uh, you know, a, a nation of immigrants? Well, I don't think it's there to the same degree that tradition of immigration is not as strong. But, I mean, there has been uh, a tradition. Uh, it's just been lower numbers, um, and so it doesn't have but, – but it's certainly being invoked by progressives. They, they will go back to the Huguenots and the Jews who arrived in the turn of the 20th century and, and other such groups as saying, hey, we're, we're a nation of immigrants. Um, so this is partly – each country has its competing narratives. So in the U.S., yes, there's a nation of immigrants narrative, but also clearly the U.S. has been a nation of mainly native-born people, um, even if they're you know, generations back, they might have been immigrants. Um, and also there's been a, a, a tradition of kind of white Anglo-Protestant, a kind of implicit tradition that would see Americanism as consisting of more than just some liberal principles. And, and I think similarly in Europe, you've got another, you know, the narrative of France is supposedly the French Revolution and these liberal principles, but equally you've also got this implicit tradition, which is sort of more uh, Christian and, and white and whatever. And, and, and I think these two things coexist. Um, I think it's a bit misleading to, to imagine that the official liberal narrative is actually the one that is completely dominant. I see. Okay. Now, um, your book is called White Shift, and in the book, White Shift, you talk about two white shifts, essentially, White Shift 1.0 and White Shift 2.0. 1.0 makes up the bulk of the book. Do you want to just explain to the audience a little bit uh, the difference between the two and how you framed and why you framed it that way, actually? Well, yeah, I mean, this was, of course, just after that populist moment post-2014, and, and part of the argument is that the decline in the historic white majorities in, in Western Europe and, and North America and so on was going to lead to a reconfiguration of politics less on the old economic left-right lines and more on the cultural. Uh, we can call it open-closed. David Goodhart uses the term somewhere is for the rooted population, anywhere is for the more mobile cosmopolitan population. But however you want to defi divide it, um, that is becoming much more the basis for party politics now. Um, and, and so it's this decline of the white majority leading to um, ethnic majority anxiety and immigration is the lightning rod for that, that kind of politics. That, that, that is sort of the white shift 1.0, this decline in the white majority, to becoming a minority in the U.S., Canada, and New Zealand around the middle of this century, um, and then at the end of this century for a lot of the Western European immigrant-receiving countries. Uh, but then the second white shift 2.0 is more that longer-term uh, rise of the mixed-race majority, which, which will emerge sort of in the 2100s, um, and it'll emerge quite quickly just mathematically through uh, intermarriage, um, so that like in Britain, for example, the numbers that we – I did a projection with a demographer where it was something like only 7 percent mixed race by 2050, but 30 percent by the end of the century, and then 75 percent uh, 50 years later. So, so that, that blurring and beijing of the white majority is sort of the, the white shift 2.0, which I talk about in the second half of the book. Gotcha. So in Europe or in the U.S., do you see this, quote, uh, white ethnic majority no longer being a majority? You see it happening sooner in Europe? Uh, well, it'll happen sooner in the U.S. simply because uh, there's a larger uh, minority population. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's maybe 
somewhere on the order of 10 to 15 percent in most of the West European immigrant receiving countries, and it's more like, you know, I guess it's probably 30, 35 in, in, in the U.S. So, uh, but, but the U.S., the rate of increase is not as fast as, say, Canada or New Zealand, which have very high immigration. So, so I think they'll probably all get there around 2050. Um, but in Europe, it'll be slower. It'll be towards the end of the century. Okay. Is that having to do somewhat with uh, how concentrated those nations are? I mean, they have fairly large populations and not the largest land mass as opposed to, say, Canada, Australia, U.S. Is that uh, possibly part of it? I don't. I actually don't think that uh, the land mass matters much because in all these countries, like Canada, where I'm from, I mean, it's it's heavily urbanized. Same with Australia. Um, I don't. So I don't think it's the land mass issue. Now, the size of the country's population does matter. So your smaller countries, Switzerland, Luxembourg, you know, Austria, tends to they, these countries tend to have a higher foreign-born share because they're smaller in population. The U.S. actually, um, its foreign-born share is, is much higher than it was, but it's, it's lower than, say, Canada or Australia, partly because its population is so large. Um, immigration rates are actually lower than, than a place like Canada by, mm. by several orders of magnitude. Mm. So um, you're focusing on the white ethnic majorities. How do you define that? Well, Okay, so if we take a place, ethnicity refers to a belief in common ancestry, and in the case of the U.S., let's say, um, the what you have, of course, are uh, you've got your sub, you know, you, you've got your ancestry groups like Italian and Irish and so on, but they're so intermixed and intermarried. Um, on the one hand, that certainly in terms of social interaction, where you live, um, to some degree, the kind of culture you consume, the, the relevant. Often the relevant category is that sort of supra-ethnic, the, the, the white category, right? So it's simply a, a family of European origin groups. That uh, now, of course, the boundaries of it are somewhat evolving and shifting. So you're you now you know because of people who are part Asian, part Hispanic, are probably now melting into that. Um, but yeah, this is sort of a pan-ethnic category that that forms the. The, the, you know, it is a sort of self-conscious community. And if you look in the survey data, actually, there is significant white identity in, in U.S., Britain, Canada. Uh, it's like 40 to 65 percent. It's not as high as, say, uh, black identity, which would be, you know, 70 to 90 percent, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some evidence to suggest it's higher in places where whites are a smaller share, certain counties, say, in the southwest of the U.S. or so on, where uh, white identity would be higher because whites are a minority. Right. Okay. Now, um, when I think of demography, which you use quite a bit, you use demographics in your, in your research, and, and I wonder, um, I mean, I usually think of, okay, life expectancy, birth rates, death rates, infant mortality, of course, the U.S. Census. But, I mean, how do you use demography? Do you decide on an issue or a topic and then dig into the statistical numbers, or do you scan the numbers and see what narratives emerge? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess I sort of had a sense of of what I was interested in, and then I went to those numbers. So I'd be interested to say, okay, so how... What's the rate of ethnic shift going on if we look at the age structure? So if the young people are, you know, majority-minority and the old people are 90% white, you know, that, that will give you a sense of, well, 
the under five population will be the median voter in like 40 years or 50 years. So you can kind of project forward pretty well with demography. Uh, so I was interested in just doing some of that projections or, or the, the rate of increase in the mixed race population. It's all possible to do with um, demographic models, which are the most predictive in the social sciences. It's not perfect, but compared to climate forecasting or economic forecasting, it's far, far uh, better. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, I was a teacher for many years in high schools in New York City, and uh, for a couple of years I had to teach math uh, when I first started, and uh, I'm a history teacher by training. What I missed about math was it was so easy to understand who got it and who didn't. It was very clear, very right. clean, and the numbers don't lie that way, where social issues are kind of vague, and there can be many perspectives on it. And um, so, uh, so in this book, what were some of the, what were some of the uh, demographic uh, numbers that surprised you when doing your research? Well, I mean, the other thing I should mention, by the way, I was interested also in the link between dem population change, demography, and, and politics, on the other hand. So that's where most of the book looks at, right? Yeah, it, but just uh, the demographic numbers, I mean, I suppose seeing New Zealand and Canada going through that majority-minority shift at, at 2050, uh, you know, I didn't quite expect that to be as soon as that, because certainly the feel, I mean, Canada is certainly growing up there, I mean, it's... It, it, has historically been a whiter society than the United States, but and New Zealand, I'd always consider to be. I know it's got a Maori, a significant Maori uh, minority, but I didn't realize it was quite that advanced in terms of the demographic shift. So those, those I suppose, surprised me somewhat. Um, but then a lot of the uh, the analysis was just looking at how support for, say, populist right parties uh, was related to uh, things like the minority share of the population and, and how rapidly that was changing. So there, there is a, one of the things you see is that almost anywhere locally where you have a fast ethnic shift, you're going to get more support for right-wing populism. Um, but, but the relationship between minority share and, and, and populist voter immigration attitudes is, is a bit more complicated. Uh, how do you mean? Well, it, seems, it varies a lot by the size of units. So, for example, if you live in a neighborhood with, that has a sort of stable uh, and relatively high minority share and you're white, your, your attitudes on things like immigration will tend to be somewhat more tolerant. If you live, however, if you live in a metropolitan area that is very diverse, your attitudes are, if anything, going to be slightly less tolerant when you control for the neighborhood. Make, so, so living in a relatively white neighborhood in a diverse metropolitan area, you would actually be slightly more likely to want immigration uh, reduced and restricted. Uh, so what, what that means is that it's there, there are sort of different effects at the neighborhood of diversity at the neighborhood level and at the county or metropolitan level. In diversity at the neighborhood level seems to sort of somewhat lead to slightly more tolerant attitudes and diversity at, in the larger units from cities up to counties up to nations tends to lead to somewhat less tolerant uh, attitudes. So it's kind of an interesting, it's just quite complicated. It's not a, sim, a single story. Sure, sure. We're, we're talking to Eric Kaufman, professor of political science at Birkbeck College, uh, the School of London University, and um, 
Eric's written a book, White Shift, which we are discussing here today. I'm Dennison at WIOX Radio, Through the Looking Glasses, this show every Monday from 9 to 10 a.m. Eric, I was really surprised to, 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 when I came across your conclusion or your, your summation that uh, economics is not the main issue in um, people's sort of fear or opposition to increasing immigration. It's more of a cultural issue. Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what, you just ask the question, uh, what correlates with somebody wanting less immigration or more immigration? Uh, Is it whether they're rich or poor, whether they've lost their job or not? Uh, There's now kind of an almost an emerging academic consensus that those personal economic circumstances have very little to do with people's attitudes. Uh, Instead, Something such as, do you support the death penalty, um, would be a much more powerful predictor. Do you think American culture was better in the past? Uh, Much, much more powerful than anything around economics. Uh, In in fact, even some have shown that that your economic outlook actually comes second once you sort of come to to your view about immigration, which is more on the basis of cultural and psychological um, profile, then you will shape your economic view accordingly. So, yeah, really, and and if you look at the Brexit and Trump votes, you see that very clearly where there's very little difference between rich and poor uh, white Americans or rich and poor white British in their tendency to vote uh, Brexit now or or, or for Trump. Yes, poorer people were, were more likely to vote Brexit than rich people. But it's not. It's, it's about a 10 to 15 point gap, whereas the gap between the people who wanted more immigration and, and a lot less immigration was like you know 70 to 80 points. And, and in the U.S., there's there's almost no economic difference between rich and poor in, in Trump voting amongst white Americans. So yeah, it's it's the it's the cultural and the psychological that really sort of ex- does the work in explaining um, who is likely to vote uh, for Trump or who's likely to vote for Brexit. Interesting, because. Um I was an economics major in my undergraduate years and um, did a year of it in grad school. And if you look at Keynesian models of supply and demand, you'd think, oh, you increase the labor supply, then the demand for labor would go down. Hence, that would suppress wages. Uh, So you would think from that lens, it would be more of an economic uh, uh, factor involved in, in resisting, say, increased immigration. And also, if you take a Marxist view, you know, you increase the reserve army of labor, and then the capitalists, right. you know, they get to, <laughs> they get to uh, you know, watch others go hungry or work for low wages. Um, so, but you don't see that in the demographics, do you? In the attitudes, you know, it's it's a very minor uh, force in terms of, of people's, you know, individuals' um, views on immigration, individuals' views on um, voting for right-wing populists are, are really not strongly connected to their personal economic circumstances. Now, you could say, well, it's it's not their own personal circumstances, it's their view of their community and, and it, how it's doing economically. And I think there is a little more to that, but only a small amount to that. I mean, actually, when you, if you ever are able to ask people about their views on things like uh, even something like the death penalty or, or even something like uh, attitudes to child rearing, that's a lot more meaningful, actually, in, in mm-hmm. figuring out what their views on immigration are going to be than anything economic. Interesting. Okay. Um, Eric, we're going to 
go to a short music seg and a station identification. So we'll be back with you in about two and a half minutes. Um, this is WIOX Radio. We're listening to Eric Kaufman, uh, London professor of political science and his book, White Shift. Eric, will be back in just two and a half minutes. Sounds good. All righty. Then all Here at WIOX Community Radio, we are live and local in the beautiful Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20. And at 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi on smart devices through the Radio FM app. And you can listen to us everywhere at WIOXradio.org, where you can also donate. And it's real easy to do if you like what you hear. We're back with Eric Kaufman uh, discussing uh, professor of political science at Birkbeck College at the School of University of London, and Eric's just written a book, White Shift, which we are in the middle of discussion of. I'm Dennison, your host of Through the Looking Glass, every Monday from 9 to 10 a.m. Eric, I, I wanted to ask you, because today, this, this in, in America anyway, uh, certainly, and, and you can tell us if it's true in Europe or in, in, in England, but we find this rise in, um, I think, uh, what would you call it, critical race theory. Um, and that seems to be maybe a reaction to this populism, or maybe it was something that was brewing anyway. Can you help us understand how they intersect in any way? Yeah, I think this has, a, has an older lineage. I, I um, remember re- reviewing a book by two of the... Uh, two critical race theory authors, uh, uh, Del- Delgado and Stefanczyk, uh, on critical white studies in 1998, I think it was, one of my first academic book reviews. Um, so, yeah, I think there's long been this this theory, which is uh, it, it is now bearing fruit in terms of being applied in, in HR departments and in equity and diversity policies and, and uh 
in all from corporations to the government and, and to schools and, and so on, and it, whereas it used to just be in the sort of uh, certain corners, so-called critical corners of the university. Um, but yeah, critical race theory sort of has, is this argument, which is a kind of quasi-Marxist argument that there is, that there are these structures of oppression. Uh, it's a bit like a matrix where we don't realize we're living in the matrix, um, but, but, but we are. There are these unconscious biases and there are these unseen economic structures that uh, why, you know, lead to uh, whites being on top and, and black people on the bottom and so on. So that, this is sort of – and, and this, this can happen without anyone thinking they're a racist or even being a racist on con- conventional definitions in terms of intending to be racist. So that is sort of the – this, this racism without racists is sort of the argument in critical race theory, and it's now being applied uh, in the form of, for example, uh, people telling uh, white employees that they've got to be uh, confess their white privilege and be allies, and, and, and the U.S. is a white supremacist society. Uh, my own view on this is that this is very much, a, you know, more or less a conspiracy theory, and I think it is correct that it is being criticized very vociferously. Similar things are happening here in Britain, just not to the same extent. But yeah, I mean, it's one can acknowledge, you know, that there are uh, there's a legacy of of racism, that that there are d- disparate outcomes, uh, that that some of those are as a result of that legacy of racism. Uh, one can look for any continuing uh, structures that don't treat people equally and try to reform them, but this sort of the attempt to endow a, a complex system of, uh, with many different causes, um, many different interactions, uh, with human properties as a sort of uh, something that was intelligently designed and mm-hmm. <laughs> continues to function as this unseen system is, I think, pretty much close to what uh, Karl Popper would define as, as the definition of a, of a conspiracy. So I think it's important to take that all apart and really say, Let's look at evidence. We need something that's measurable and can be falsified. Otherwise, it is just an ideology, really. Right. So you, you described it as sort of racism without the racists. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, that's such an interesting definition. I haven't heard it framed that way before. Um, but you say it, it's, it's heavily backed by corporate America. So how does that happen if it's a conspiracy theory in a sense? Well, because, I mean, you've, it's not the only, I mean, there have been many of these meta-conspiracy theories. I mean, to some degree, Marxism, the idea that there's this ruling class that's out there to keep the proletariat in its place and, and you know, that this society structured that way is, I think, a similar worldview, right? And so you have these sort of meta-theories that, that you know, typically float around. Uh, but these want, this time they're, they're, they're being taken uh, really quite seriously, right? So I think that's, and, and they're now starting to, to penetrate into workplaces and, and, and in, to be articulated in the flesh where you might have groups that are separated on the basis of race and told different things on the basis of, to, to feel guilty. So, yeah, it's quite a, a step up, really, in the march of, of an ideology. So it's really crystallizing into reality and, and away from... When it's high theory, it's a bit like Marxism. It's high theory. It's quite interesting to think about these frameworks, and and there's some truth in a lot of these frameworks. Once it gets to the application, as where a lot of the uh, negatives really start to show up. So yeah, I think this is. Um, but sorry, I, I got off topic again. Okay. What did you? 
What were you uh, specifically asking about well, critical no, race? Then? It's fine. Uh, about critical race theory, you know, racist, yeah. uh, racism without racists or, you know, yeah. basically, uh, I guess that, that society is systematically racist. And if you say America's colorblind, then you are a racist, that kind of thinking. Um, it is used now really directed at the populism, and certainly at the Trump movement in this country. I don't know how it was directed over right. your side of the pond, but uh, um, I, I'm just curious why corporate America has embraced it so far. Oh, yeah. Well, I think there's always been a, a – don't forget this is also connected to what's known as the cultural turn of the left from, from class to identity in the post-1960s. So this is also partly about the evolution of uh, left – or what I would call left modernist ideology, which is a sort of cultural left ideology, which is, I think, arguably a hegemonic ideology in cultural institutions. Um, and there's always been a sort of bleed-in from, uh, and this was commented on by sociologists like Daniel Bell in the 1960s, between uh, academia, let's say, and, and Bohemian, uh, the Bohemian left into um, knowledge work, sort of more bourgeois kind of yuppie knowledge workspaces. There's always been a certain cultural borrowing trendiness coming from the, those bohemian avant-garde into the, uh, the white-collar, um, new technological sectors, universities, and so on. Um, so I think this is just part of that process. I mean, even diversity training came out of the uh, – that was being adopted in the 1980s, for example, in, in, in companies. And, and they were uh, – or, or, and this term bobo, bohemian bourgeois, which had been used by, uh, I think, David Brooks. He wrote a book, The Rise of the Bobos, I think his early 2000s. Same sort of phenomena where you had people combining that kind of progressive left – cultural sensibility with more or less an economic capitalist, um, you know, um, material life. And, and the tech firms are doing precisely that. It's, it's a very sort of capitalist uh, model materially, but culturally they're borrowing heavily from the progressive radical left. And it's that fusion we see also with um, the rise of the so-called world corporations. They're, they're building on this sort of status belief system out of the uh, sort of trendy bohemian left, and they're kind of grafting it onto a, a very much a capitalist mode of production. Gotcha. So I think that's where we're at now. <laughs> wow. Now, you know, this, I don't know, this, I don't know, this is kind of curious to me. I, I think back to a, a quote uh, attributed to Boss Tweed um, during some of the riots in New York City, and he said to the governor, you don't know about the enlightenment of poverty, do you? He said, because if you knew, you would know that you can always pay half of the poor to kill the other half. And so a conspiracy theorist might say, hey, corporations grabbing on to this left modernism, which is completely oppositional to, say, I guess, the white ethnic majorities, are we setting up a, a, a conflict down the road that maybe uh, could get out of hand? Any thoughts on that? I think that the, yeah, I think the polarization uh, has been ratcheting up. In the U.S., you just have to look at from 1980 to, to the 2010s and on questions like, you know, would you want your daughter to marry someone of the other party? Would you want to date somebody of the other party? And, and you know, I, I, a nice stat is that only only 6% of, of um, Ivy League uh, female students who are, who are not themselves Trump supporters and only about 
seven out of 100 are, but if you, only about 6% of them would date a, a Trump supporter. I, I think that gives you an indication. I mean, this is sort of roughly the way Northern Ireland would operate in terms of dating, uh, if you're Protestant, dating a Catholic right. and vice versa. You know, it's, it's that level of sectarianism. Um, so, yeah, I think this is really getting, getting to a high level. There was a survey, I think, that said that uh, 40% of, of people on both sides would suggest that violence was sometimes acceptable uh, as a way of, of you know, dealing with the other side, you know, so yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely increased, uh, and this is very much, what's interesting is it's, it's very much within the white American population that you see this sharp polarization um, between, say, conservatives and liberals or Democrats and Republicans, um, whereas actually amongst, let's say, African Americans, there's, there's actually less difference uh, in, in attitudes between Republican, black Republicans and black Democrats, for example. The, the, the partisan intensity doesn't seem to be as strong. Um, so, yeah, there, this is sort of like a, 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 a kind of a civil war within white America. It's spilled all, spilling over to some degree uh, into the other groups. Um, and I don't, I don't see the intensity of that becoming less. Right, right, which is concerning. And now I wondered if because of that movement going on today, if you've had some, if you've gotten some heat from your book, um, you know, the title saying um, basically populism, immigration, and the, I guess, shrinking of the white majorities in Western democracies, say. I mean, it sounds like a perfectly reasonable thesis, but given the context, it, it sounds like almost a, a brave endeavor. <laughs> Yeah, I think you have to talk about these things honestly and, and, and reveal what the data say. And, and so, for example, the idea that you could be understanding about, say, white majorities experiencing ethnic change and, 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 and understanding of those cultural anxieties, and, and, you know, that, that is sort of beyond the pale, I would say, in, uh, in some progressive circles, and probably in, in fairly wide circles within academia, for example. Um, but I, but at the same time, it's very hard to deny, for example, the 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 psychological research which shows that um, being hostile to outgroups uh, is not correlated generally with attachment to your own group, right? So, so this odd this contention that. Uh, well, they want less immigration because they hate Hispanics or, 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 or whoever, or Muslims, whatever. Um, it's actually not well supported. I mean, of course, there are, there are some races, but to equate uh, attachment to one's own group or, or to the way one's nation is with hatred and fear of the outgroup is, is not a step that I think you can justify on the, on the basis of the data. I think a lot of this is – so, for example, in the – the most used – uh, American um, National Election Study. It's called the American National Election Study. It's been conducted since the late 1940s. Uh, and you can see that white Americans who are more, uh, feel more warmly towards white people do not feel more cool towards, say, African Americans or, or Latinos than whites who, who are not particularly warm towards white people. Um, which is, so it's not really a zero sum. Uh, kind of relationship. Whereas, on the other hand, for example, the, the more warmly you feel towards Democrats, yes, the more cool you are towards Republicans. That is a zero-sum, really a zero-sum relationship. But I think there has been an attempt to suggest that 
um, you know, whites who feel attached to the way the country was when they were growing up and so on, uh, or to their own group are somehow racist. And I think that is actually a mistake. So I, I, I'm not shy, and I'm, I'm not the only one to say that, uh, you know, to some extent. Ashley Jardina's book, White Identity, which, which is more from a progressive left perspective, but more or less says the same thing, but still it's not something that comes easily, I think, to a lot of people who would think of, geez, white identity, that must mean racism, you know, that very simplistic uh, reaction. Um, and I think if we're to have an honest conversation about these issues, we'd have, we're going to have to get to a place where we think, okay, yes, you know, opposition to immigration is largely cultural, but that's not the same thing as saying racism and hatred of outgroups. It's, it's very much about uh, wanting to hang on to something that you know, um, and that that has a certain legitimacy. It's, it's not, again, it's not the whole, it can't be absolute. There's got to be an accommodation, right? So uh, it's, it's, it should be about, it shouldn't be about the sort of black, white, open, closed view of the world that's very binary. I think it should be more about a shades of gray, faster versus slower. There's people who want cultural ethnic change to be faster and some who want it slower uh, and the task should be to find an accommodation rather than uh, sort of slinging the deplorable label uh, or the racist label right away uh, at those who want slower and I think that's kind of the the bind we find ourselves in almost uh, I think you reference this in your book too that a, a woman may be a feminist or believe in feminist beliefs doesn't mean she's uh, anti-male is, is that kind of a equating the uh, point you're making on racial yeah yep. yeah or even like if i if i'm really attached to my family um does that mean i hate my neighbors more than if i'm not attached to my family well no there's no real relationship right. except it can be a relationship if you're in a wartime situation and you're fighting the other ethnic groups then yeah absolutely right. Um, right. But, but not generally interesting okay so I was hoping we could talk quickly about Evergreen College because that seems to be like this mini uh, ground zero of uh, explosion of left modernism on American campuses. Uh, I know you're familiar with that. Do you want to just give the audience a quick uh, overview of that? I know um, Brett Weinstein's story is certainly very familiar to me. Uh, you know, the Jewish um, progressive, very progressive uh, professor of evolutionary studies. Um, try to somewhat, I guess, speak up to uh, this left modernism and was ousted. I wonder if you could comment right. on that situation, how you see that uh, spreading throughout the, maybe other universities, or is Evergreen really unique? Well, no, I mean, you can see a number of, I mean, you can certainly track in the, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has a disinvitation or kind of no platforming database where you can see a, a real spike around 2015. Um, in Britain, that didn't happen until 2018, 2019. But in both cases, there's been a big, sharp increase in, in both no platforming and attempts to get professors fired. Uh, big jump in the U.S. between 2019-2020, there's been a big rise in, in attempts to get professors fired. But this is all part, again, of the ideology of which I call left modernism. What that is is essentially a fusion of uh, liberalism, which was historically going back to rights for Catholics after the, you know, even back to the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s, but really liber that liberalism was about getting equal rights for minorities, religious minorities, racial, sexual, uh, gender, etc. So, so that was really 
uh, where liberalism was, um, a focus on minorities to try to get them equal rights. And, and then you had the Marxist uh, tradition, which was about essentially society as oppressor and oppressed, um, as a zone of sort of zero-sum conflict between groups, and there has to be this revolution to overthrow the oppressor and bring forth this new millennium of, of equality. So you had that a fusion of, of the Marxist kind of um, revolutionary uh, view of society um, overthrowing the oppressed with, except instead of thinking of the oppressor as, as the capitalist class, it's now the oppressor as the white male uh, and so, or the white straight male, etc. And so that repurposing of the Marxist outlook onto categories that had been developed by liberalism, the cultural identity categories, race, gender, for example, that happens uh, it happens in the 60s, although I think there are certain precursors that go back to the 1910s, actually. Um, but in any case, you have that, and then you have it blended in with this Freudian kind of psychotherapeutic strain around, uh, which, which is more to do with, it, it becomes issues around emotional safety and hurt and harm and offense and all these sorts of things, which... Um, uh, come in have come in quite strongly in this latest wave, uh, which which Matthew Iglesias calls the Great Awakening. That, that starts around 2015, um, and so that yeah, this this is sort of the dominant ideology I think in the high culture now, which is this idea of uh, equality of outcome for identity groups. Uh, so in any in any worthwhile endeavor, whether it be wealth or whether it be uh, political uh, office or, or, or cultural representation, that there has to be, at, at the very least, uh, proportional representation of identity groups. And if not, uh, that's indication of a kind of structural racism. So that, that, that kind of has been emerging. The one thing I would say, though, is that we saw episodes of what I'd call cancellation that go back to uh, the 1960s, for example, when, um, for example, there was a demand to create 50 black studies posts at San Francisco State University in 1968. Um, and students struck, black students and, and, and some other radical students sort of occupied the, the office of the, uh, the provost and, and uh, and they said, you know, any black student must be admitted to the university. And so, th so this is this was happening in the 60s and and in the 90s, 80s, and 90s. You had the sec what I would call the second great awakening, which was when the term political correctness emerges, uh, and you had episodes that were equally as crazy as what we see. So I don't think the ideas are dramatically new, but I think that uh, the scale is just so much greater because the graduates from the so-called studies departments, black studies, gender studies, whatever, there's more of them. They've become administrators, they're in HR departments, equity, diversity officers, and so on. And then you've got social media, which has also given a lot more power to sort of organize outrage mobs. And, and all of this has really sort of ginned up the, the, the sort of strength of this movement. So yeah, um, this is sort of the context in which we see uh, a lot of the, the politics like Evergreen unfolding. And now, of course, it's spilling into uh, you know, the woke corporation, for example, and, and obviously into publishing and, and media and a whole bunch of other sectors. We are talking, and we have been talking, to Eric Kaufman, professor of political science at Birkbeck College of the School of University of London. Uh, I'm afraid, Eric, we've come to that last moment of time. Eric's book is <laughs> White Shift, um, Populism, Immigration, and... Uh, Western ethnic uh, white majorities, really, and they're shrinking. And it's a fascinating read, and um, 
I learned a lot from it, Eric. I really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time today. Uh, 